Gracious and loving God, as we begin this journey of Lent together, we pray that you might transform us by your word and by this belief that you are still speaking. Open our hearts and open our minds and open our ears that we might hear you anew. And that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. So our sermon series this morning, or well, this Lenten journey is out of the inspiration of seeking. Actually, that's the title of it in general, seeking, finding God, searching for God. And we talked a little bit about that sort of introduction last week and what that means for us. And so if you weren't here with us last week or didn't watch us online, we invite you to go back to that sermon and kind of follow along. But one of the things I say there, and I say often, is that our questions are not to be relegated to the side of conversations about our faith. In fact, our questions, I believe, drive us deeper in our knowledge and love and even in fellowship with one another. And uh, for those of you who know, I didn't grow up reading the Bible, but when I finally did read the Bible, I remember vividly opening its pages and reading it for the first time and having a lot of questions. Has anyone else had any questions when you read the Bible? You know, no? Yeah, still, right? Well, I just happen to be surrounded by uh, high school students that never know anything ever, right? You know, they're never convinced that they know all the truths of the world. And so I would bring my questions to those high school Bible studies with my friends, and they would happen to tell me all of the answers that were there. I would read scriptures like, you know, it was at the time of the Bush-Gore campaign, you know, and one of the hot topics, at least in my small town in Minnesota, was capital punishment, and, you know, people were voting based on who believed what, and I remember reading the Bible and being like, Jesus is telling all of his followers to turn the other cheek, and yet all of you are saying that capital punishment is really good and important for society, and I'm not trying to get political. All I'm trying to say was I was had a question, just a legitimate question. Like, why does the Bible say this? And why are you telling me I need to do this? And they quickly corrected me to why I had a wrong interpretation of Jesus's words and how Jesus's words really had nothing to do with capital punishment. And I was just kind of connecting dots that weren't being meant, meant to be connected. And then I fast forwarded in my journey of faith and I started to learn more. And as I learned more, what I was astonished by was the fact that the questions I had when I first opened the Bible, in fact, were really good questions. And that the answers I was given, I mean, in part because they're high school students, I thought they knew everything, right? But also, in part, just because the people that sometimes give all the answers, well, the answers aren't the most important thing at all times. Like, it means this, it says this, because the questions themselves are so valuable. And one of the questions I get on a regular basis is the question around the scripture readings. Well, both of these scripture readings, but we're going to start with the first one, which is this question of the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve. And so I'm going to invite you for a minute to put on your theology hats with me because we're going to go down a little bit of a theology trail. And I, I mentioned a few weeks ago, in fact, next week I leave to go to California, that I sit on a committee for the United Methodist Church that helps people through the ordination process and kind of determines whether they have 
proper Methodist theology and have can implement that in their daily ministry. And so um, don't tell anyone on that committee that I'm going to say this because they might kick me off that committee. But in fact, when I read the story of uh, Adam and Eve in this, we often uh, interpret this story as the story of original sin. Has anyone ever heard that phrase before, original sin? Um, well, I'm going to go out on a limb, a uh, theological, like, heretical limb, and say, I do not believe in original sin. Don't believe in it. In fact, one of the questions I get on a regular basis from people is, how could God make us good and yet be born wrong? How could God make us good and be born wrong? So if you know what original sin is and you know kind of the problems around it, you're with me on that comment. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let's back up and kind of follow it. So within the church, this story of Adam and Eve and them making the wrong decision has a theological heritage of humanity in general choosing wrongness and that having ramifications throughout all of humanity. So when Adam and Eve were there in perfect relationship to God, they were given one command, do not eat of the apple. Although, did you notice it doesn't say apple? Do not eat of the apple. And yet what Adam and Eve do, now all of humanity from now on is marred by the destruction of sin and death. And that we, from the very moment we are born, are in need of God to save us from that original sin. And so no matter what we do in this life, we are born sinners in need of God's grace. And I think there's half truths in there, but I want to tell you a little bit about the problem that I encountered later on in my journey of that theology. And the problem I encounter, I would imagine, is a problem that many of you have encountered in one way without maybe naming it in your own life. And that's when I went to college and I started to re, you know, explore more and realize that my questions were better than the answers that were given to me. I was also looking around as a private Christian school and I was surrounded by faithful followers. And I believe they're faithful followers of God trying to live their best to embody God's love in the world. But did you know what? That they weren't perfect. Yeah, yeah. Did you know they weren't perfect? Obviously they weren't perfect. But more than that, more than that they weren't perfect, they were flawed in ways that when I left from college and went and studied abroad in Japan, they were flawed in ways that were a lot less than perfect than some of my Japanese friends that I was getting to know. For example, one of the ways in which I experienced God in this world is through the hospitality and generosity offered to me by the Japanese community that embraced me when I was uh, teaching English in Japan. And how this creates a theological conundrum for us is if that we believe that, Jesus, that we were born sinners and the way to be made right is through belief in Jesus and following Jesus, it creates problems for what does it mean for people who are embodying the characteristics and the values and the love of God more than believers are. Does that make sense? Because how can you embody goodness if we are born sinners and we are in need of this belief and following and pursuit of Jesus to be made right and better 
so that we can have Christian ethics and values and the things that make us good and whole and happy. And it created a problem for me because if you know anything about Japan, Japan will check the box non-religious more than any other nation in the world, that they don't have a belief, which is, I, I could argue with you in a separate conversation. I don't actually think that's true, but either way, they're definitely not a Christian country. And so they don't have this thing called belief in Jesus to make them good and faithful people. And yet when I lived there, I saw the characteristics and the marks of Jesus on their lives. So much so that it even trumped the friends that I was involved with in this Christian college where all of us are professing Christians. And it creates a theological problem if we believe that we are born sinners and in need of God to correct us through a singular faith so that we can be better people. Because the assumption there is that the church now is made up of people that are better than the world around us. And I know not all of us believe that to be the case, but if you follow kind of the, the rabbit hole of where the words and the beliefs that we have lead us, it leads us there. That if we have this sole way to be good living and, you know, right, and others don't, that means essentially if we're following this path of faith, we're better than others. It's theological problem number one of original sin. And the other is just becoming a father, right? The other is just recognizing that children born into the world are born into this world as innocent babies. And you might follow Erickson or, you know, the the, the not the psychologists that say everyone was born kind of narcissists, you know, that only care about their own needs and the only reason they cry and all those things. But I, I think that when you hold a baby and you start to raise that baby, you realize that they're just born kind of with this openness to the world around them, right? And that there's some of the characteristics that we're born with that are just good by nature, in fact, I think that as we raise our children and we raise our youth, one of the things that I hope that they know for all of us, or that all of them know, is that you are born with this indelible image of God in you that's good and that's whole. So now, what does that mean for this story of Adam and Eve? Well, I'd like to argue that I actually don't think that original sin was a theology people held onto until later on in the Christian journey by this guy named St. Augustine. Great guy, had a lot of good things, but he's really the one around 300 AD that began to argue for this, that humanity was bent in on themselves and they will only follow themselves without God kind of straightening them. Before that time, the primary way in which people understood the story of old, and even the primary way in which the rabbis and the Jewish people understood the story of Adam and Eve, was less about sin entering into the world and more about what it actually looks like to make wise choices and to grow in this thing called humanity. And that being said is that if you read the story of Genesis, 
Adam and Eve make a mistake. And their mistake, if you catch the words, is that they believe by this sneaky serpent that if they eat of the tree of good and evil, they will have the ability to discern the wisest path forward for them. It's an altruistic goal, right? They just want to be able to make good decisions in life. And they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge so that they might know. But the serpent adds in this phrase, they might know and be like God, right? They might know and be like God. Now place that image over against Jesus in the wilderness. And what we see is the temptation threefold to follow what we might think is good. And at the same time, kind of abandoning this reliance on God. See, Satan in the wilderness, or Hasatan, however you want to translate it, again, another conversation, another time. Satan in the wilderness tempts Jesus on three natural ways. Imagine yourself hungry and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, but not just imagine yourself hungry and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine yourself as someone capable of ending world hunger. Because you now have the ability to turn stone to bread. Now, how amazing for everyone would that be if we could change stone to loaves? A desire not just to feed ourselves, but a, a desire to feed all the world. But Jesus replies, humanity does not live on bread alone. Jesus acknowledges this actually practice of the Jewish people as they wandered in the wilderness. Remember Bible trivia from a few weeks ago? 40 days and 40 nights of fasting mirrored the 40 years in the wilderness. When the practice of God's people was not to be self-sustaining so everyone had the food that they needed, that they could do it themselves. But 40 years in the wilderness, God trained God's people to rely on God through the manna and the quail. And when they tried to store it up for themselves and you know, put it into jars so they could have more for later, it dissipated and rotted. And it seems that God's goal for humanity wasn't just that we could feed everyone or that we could all have more than enough to eat, but that there was something about relying on our daily bread, like the Lord's Prayer says, that was important for Jesus, well, for God, so much so that Jesus remembered. Temptation number two. Bringing him up to the pinnacle of the, Jewish, of the temple and saying, you shall never be hurt. And Jesus knows, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Temptation number three. Be the Messiah. 
that everyone hopes you will be. Go up to the roof, or go up to the cliff and look out at the vastness of the nations before you, and I will hand all of them over to you. Remember the conversations we've been having over the past few weeks about the Roman Empire and the regime and the power and the authority that they would place over the people and the expectations that were going to lead us to Easter, that Jesus is the one to overthrow that, or that's the hope, at least, that he would take over the Roman Empire that was oppressing the people, an altruistic goal. But Jesus knows one thing. We must not give ourselves to worship of something else for the sake of the goal that we have in mind. And so when you hear these scriptures alongside each other, one of the things that I hear, at least, is this question, an answer to the question, who are we listening to? Because on one time, you have Adam and Eve that are listening to the serpent, as opposed to God. The serpent tells them that if you eat of the tree, you'll be able to decide what's good and right, and you can then make good and right decisions in your life all at the expense of God's desire, which is that we would rely on God for direction. And then Jesus, fast forward, here's the temptation over and over again, ones that would think that we could easily say yes to feed the world, the ability to protect oneself and others, overthrow the evil Roman Empire. And yet, Jesus, though he may desire those, chooses to hold fast to the wisdom of God. At the beginning of Proverbs, the book where it says, you know, do this and don't do that. There's a story, and I've talked about this story before, and it's a story of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly are there, and you have the character that's meant to follow the path of wisdom. And Lady Wisdom is speaking over the rooftops, calling out our name, while Lady Folly is opening the doors on the streets where we walk, inviting us in. Who will we listen to? The journey of Lent and the faithful practices that we have is not just a journey of giving up for the sake of giving up. Our spiritual practices are born out of a desire to hear God speak to us. And this belief that God is, in fact, speaking now. And so my question to each of us is not just what's your Lenten practice, but how are your spiritual practices opening yourself to hear God speak as opposed to your own voice, your own desires, or the desires that the world tells us we ought to have? And so when I say I don't believe in original sin, I don't believe in original sin because I think life is a choice of choosing who we will listen to. 
And the good news is, is that Adam and Eve made a mistake. And so did the Israelites over and over again. And so did the disciples over and over again. And so do we over and over again. And so it's not about you being a bad person, born evil, but it's about you being a person who has a choice to listen to the voice of yourself and to the voice of the world, inviting you to not rely and to not attune your ear to the voice of God, hoping to direct us and to guide us and to lead us. So how do you listen? And to whom are you listening? And more specifically, what practices do you have in your life that help you listen more fully? Fast forward to, not fast forward, but remember the Board of Ordained Ministries that I talked about? Well, one of the things that John and Charles Wesley, the beginners of our Methodist flavor of this Christian faith, talked about is means of grace, which means ways in which we experience God, or almost, you could say, ways in which we hear from God. And I believe, personally, we have ordinary ways and extraordinary ways, as they described Ordinary ways in which we can experience God and perhaps hear from God are Bible, prayer, meditation, singing worship songs, being together in Christian fellowship, listening to one another. Extraordinary ways that you might hear God's grace, walking on the beach, taking a hike, going to an art exhibit, reading a good book. One of the practices I often recommend of newly, uh, or couples about to be married. Write down a list. Write down a list of things you do in your relationship that after that activity, you're more connected to one another. And then come back together and talk about them. And it's actually a practice, if you've been married for a number of years, I invite you to go and do. But I invite us more specifically to do that with our faith. That this week, I give you a simple task. Write down some ordinary ways and some extraordinary ways you experience God. Write down some ordinary ways and some extraordinary ways that you experience God. And you can rank them. And as you look to see the ways in which God speaks to you in your past and your present, do them. It is easy to slip away into the normal, the mundane, and to slip from those things that center us on listening to God's voice. And Lent is a season where we remind ourselves whose we are and who we follow. So let us follow those practices that help us listen to the voice of God. I invite you to pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks that you guide us. That although we have made wrong decisions in the past, you continue to direct us and desire for us to listen to your voice speaking over the rooftops. Remind us of those faithful practices we have that draw us closer to you. 
or invite and open up those opportunities where we can question and explore all that we don't know with others. And in so doing, we can realize that this path of Christian faith, of bettering ourselves and embodying your love, is not one of knowing right from wrong, but one of following the love that you speak over us and listening to your love spoken to each and every one of us. Amen.